You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 336 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with educator, fiddle player, and our resident philosopher, Surf William. The Surf and I discuss unions and the right-wing propaganda machine, the appeal of dictatorship vis-a-vis Caesar Augustus, polls and infotainment as opposed to actual news, rock star deaths, and a few other areas of discourse as well. A grand conversation with Surf William on this week's program. We have an EW essay titled America, and our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, reads a review from the famed New Yorker magazine movie critic, film critic, Pauline Kale. And it's a review of The Godfather Part Two. We also have a poem called Bush. And all of this, as is always the case, is imbued, infused with the energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 336 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
America. I was watching a Little League fall ball game last night. The air crisp with the smells and dusk sunlight unique to the last few days of the summer. I love autumn. I love baseball and Little League. When it is done right, of course. And this fall ball season, I'm witnessing it done right. I have two sons on the team. One is 10 and the other is 11 years old. Their coach just recently had some sort of medical procedure done on his left cheek, leaving a scar. His team includes a couple of above-average players, mostly boys with two girls. They are certainly not a group of dominant all-stars, but like their coaches who know the game, they are earnest and they are having fun together and they are improving and growing as players and as people. Last night, they came from behind in the bottom of the fifth of a six-inning game as the ball field started to become a bit dark since the rich folk who live nearby won't allow the township to put up permanent lights. But that's another story. They won because of some key at-bats, good base running, solid relief pitching, and quality fielding. But most of all, they won because of their chemistry and their heart. That, to me, is Little League Baseball. And that, to me, is so wonderfully inspiring. I wish you saw them run toward each other once the first baseman caught the ball, thrown by the shortstop for the game-winning out in the top of the sixth. And I wish you heard the coach and the players out in left field after the game celebrating and reflecting on their win. Now listen to me. This game of baseball is only one half skill. The other half is something else. Something bigger. You gotta have heart. All you really need is heart. When the odds are saying you never win, that's when the grin should start. You gotta have hope. Mustn't sit around and mope. Nothing's half as bad as it may appear. Wait till next year and hope. When your luck is batting zero, get your chin up off the floor. Mister, you can be a hero. You can open any door. There's nothing to it but to do it. You gotta have heart. Miles and miles and miles of heart. Oh, it's fine to be a genius, of course. But keep that old horse before the cart. First you gotta have heart. A great slugger we haven't got. A great pitcher we haven't got. A great ball club we haven't got. What do we got? Should start. No, you 
start getting the idea. We've got hope. We don't sit around and mope. Not a solitary sod do we need, Mr. Cause we've got hope. Boys, I'm proud of you. We're so happy that we're humming. That's the hardy thing to do. Ho, ho, ho. Cause we know our ship will come in. So it's ten years overdue. Ho, ho, ho. We've got heart. Miles and miles and miles of heart. Oh, it's fine to be a genius, of course. But keep that old horse before the car. So what the heck's the use of crying? Why should we curse? We gotta get better, cause we can't get worse. And to add to it, we've got heart. We've got heart. We've got heart. Okay, Smokey Baby, let's go get him. Right, Rocky. Now, boys, don't forget what I told you. You betcha, Benny. Come on, Rocky, you tell him. We've got heart, miles and miles and miles of heart. Oh, it's fine to be a genius, of course, but keep that old horse before the car. Who minds them pop bottles flying? The hisses and boos. The team has been consistent. Yeah, we always lose, but, but we're laughing cause we've got Sir Fulham, is that you? I, I called you today. I'm mixing it up. Yeah, I, I, I tried to call you. It didn't come through? Uh, you know, um, iPhones and, and app updates and so forth. I can't be expected to know everything. No, no, you can't. And, and uh, after, after all, you're the one who brought up imposter syndrome. I am a total imposter. I realize it all the time. <laughs> you know? Uh, by the way, folks, this is our regular contributor, educator, fiddle player, and our resident philosopher, Surf William, on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And yes, we have bo both been imposters for years, uh, and we we have uh, witnessed each other's uh, impostering uh, since we're in high school. Yes, we're finally indeed. coming to terms with it. I, you know, the, 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 it's a real thing. It's a real psychological thing, imposter syndrome. And, um, you know, I think those of us who claim that we suffer from it, I think we're only partially telling the truth. I think there's a part of us that feels like we're awesome. But there's also a part of us that says, I, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. I can't believe I've pulled a fast one on everybody. And I'm actually here doing this thing. And they all think I know what I'm doing. You know, and and you feel like you feel like you you kind of do, but you kind of don't. Like I always thought it would feel differently when people called me a fiddle player, or when people called me a teacher, or when people said to me, "Wow, you know, you speak great German." I always thought it would feel differently because I still feel like I'm fumbling through all of those things. You know, half conscious, completely inept. You know, but I'm doing it. And obviously I'm doing it because people tell me that I'm doing it. 
And so where do you think that comes from, this sense of uh, I'm not good enough or I'm not good or I'm a phony and all that, imposter syndrome? My, my pop psychological analysis of the situation says that it's, it's healthy to have some self-doubt. It's actually, you know, based on everything I've seen in the world around me, those who are overconfident about their way, um, their, their ideology, their technique, their um, belief system, those are the people who really scare me. I much prefer a little bit of doubt. Now, too much doubt can be crippling. I'm talking about healthy amounts of, of, of self-questioning. And um, I think it comes, honestly, I think it comes from a healthy place. It sounds like uh, weakness to me. Well, right. And to, to a lot of people, it does sound that way. And let me tell you something. Those people, too, are suffering from imposter syndrome. They're, it's just manifesting itself in a different way. They're super defensive. Don't joke about their competence. Don't joke about their abilities. That's too fragile an area to go to. And, you know, we know those kinds of people. Then they're not healthy. No, and, and some of them are more humane and more sensitive uh, about their existence on, on this planet. And others are brutal in the way that they respond to that sense of being an imposter, right? We can talk about, what's his name? The orangutan that we have in the White House, right? I only say, all I say is the village idiot. Right, that's the all village I, that's idiot. That's all I say. And then you could talk about someone like, you know, uh, 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 Kurt Cobain or Chris Cornell, you know, mm -hmm. rock stars. You wanted to talk about rock star deaths. I'm sure they had that as well, To And they had other issues, I suppose. I don't know. I'm not an expert, uh, nor am I really uh, well read on, on their backgrounds. But they didn't feel like they were good enough in, in some way, and they took their own lives. So it can, come to, it can go to that extreme, too. You know, you could be brutal to other people and or be brutal to yourself. Well, you know, I think really what you're getting at is the question of what is the healthy balance? Because when you're talking about Kurt Cobain and a lot of artists, there was certainly, you know, again, I'm not a psychologist uh, and I, I hate to misuse these terms, but I feel like there was definitely like clinical depression in there, yeah. um, different kinds of psychological, emotional problems that were severe that, in my opinion, probably caused them so much pain that we couldn't really appreciate that, you know, death seemed like a, a, a reasonable alternative. I don't condemn people who commit suicide. I mean, we can condemn the, the, the father of three little kids who kills himself or, you know, a parent or a child of a, of, a, of a parent who loves them very much. And now the parent is left to cope with the death of that child. Um, it's a horrible thing. But I don't know what that person was going through. Like, if you're in so much pain physically or psychologically, how am I supposed to know what you can handle? how much you can take before you just want to check out. I mean, I think, I think healthy people have thought about suicide. I've thought about it. Never had the guts to go through with it. Thank goodness. But I've thought about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, this is an uplifting conversation here in Troubadours. I think, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's completely healthy to put all this stuff out in the open. I, I think it's our own taboos and our own phobias and fears that stop us from just putting it all out there i'll tell you what and as an extension of that the next generation coming up our kids right our kids that generation they're out there in the street and they're doing stuff and they're talking about it and they're gender fluid and they're advocates for the earth um and they're advocates for tolerance and anti-bullying and our generation i know there are people in our generation we're in our 50s there are people who look askance at that stuff like like suck it up you know, we dealt with it. You deal with it. And I like this mentality that's coming up now from the next generation uh, where it's like we're not going to take it. And even if they fail, and I hope they don't, 
but they did what they could. And I really respect them for it. You know, you say deal with it, suck it up as a mentality that comes from older generations such as ours and, and mm-hmm. uh, generally speaking and generations before ours. And, I, you know, recently I watched a, a comedian, Bill Burr, and he was talking about... I uh, love Bill Burr, by the way. I do, too. <clears throat> He's a great satirist, I, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, he he's talking about from his generation the way he was taught. If you want to be a quote unquote real man, strong, you just repress, you push it down, you push it yep. in, you don't mm-hmm. let yeah. it out. You know, and right. that's not healthy. That's exactly what you're talking about. And uh, everybody and everybody knows it's not healthy, and 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 yet you know it's part of our culture. Let's face it: the rugged individualist, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Total mythology, by the way. Like that's not really how a lot of great, you know, famous rich people in America got there. But the point is, um, that's part of the culture. It's woven into the culture. Don't whine, suck it up, deal with it. Except, you know, here's the irony: Republicans, all they do is whine and cry about everything. Like they can't handle anything. I'm serious. Like, like what did, what did, what did a kid say to me? Um, butt sore. Don't get, don't Oh, My daughter said, don't get butt sore. I'm like, you can't say get butt sore to me. That's not appropriate. <laughs> but, but I know what she means. Like everybody is, you know, hurt and offended. And it comes from, again, you know, I'm going to lash out at the right. Cause that's what I do. It comes from the right. I mean, I don't watch Fox, Fox news, but it does pop up on my newsfeed on my phone. They're always whining about something. Um, you know, so there is an element of suck it up, you know, be strong, but it's got to be a sort of moderate message and it's got to be te- tempered with a little bit of don't stand for injustice. And if you're hurting, say so. And if you need help, ask for help. There's nothing wrong with that either. And I think this generation coming up, um, that's their their value system is a little different than than ours was, you know, or our parents was, I think. Well, I think so too. Uh, there, you know, and it, it is evolution. I hope uh, that we that we're seeing, in, in terms of human understanding, uh, and the way to cope with complex problems. But you know, from our area where where you and I were born and raised, you know, I still uh, am here, and I'm witnessing the mindset here, um, and it it hasn't evolved too much. I have to say. The level of corruption, the re- the level of uh, clan mentality and crab uh, bucket mentality is strong yeah. as ever here. Uh, and, uh, you know, religion, I was reading a bit about what one of the people you wanted to talk about, Max Weber. You know, uh-huh. he, he believing that religion is a huge influence on, on bureaucracy and, and how we function in organizational uh, systems in our society. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that could be, I mean, he looked at it as a positive, I suppose, the Protestant work ethic and the like. But I, I think that religious influence and that, you know, uh, looking at everything as, as a, you know, you do this and you get rewarded. If you don't do this, you're going to get punished uh, as a negative uh, influence in the way that we, we view our stead in the world and how to, how to function effectively and such. What do you think? Well, you threw. I mean, that, that's a lot of stuff to put on the table. I mean, if you're talking about um, Weber, I prefer the I prefer the German pronunciation. I try to always improve my German, Max Max Weber. But we can call him Weber because I think that's what they say in Amer- in American schools. And I I feel like you know, if you're talking about Weber, you have to talk about Marx. And there was one other philosoph- philosopher, sociologist in the Durenmont, Dur- maybe I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. They were the three big ones who talked about, I think their motivation was the advent of full-on industrial capitalism. I think that that, um, 
that economic phenomenon and social phenomenon is what is what is what they were you know, what really influenced them, right? I mean, Marx wrote Das Kapital in the Communist Manifesto uh, kind of as a reaction to what he saw as the ills of capitalism. In my opinion, you can't really fully understand capitalism and its inherent flaws if you don't read Marx and you don't read Max Weber. I think it's really important. Um, Weber, I don't think Weber was an advocate for the bureaucracy and for capitalism. I think Weber was simply saying, you know, how did this happen? And, and again, I hope I don't misquote him, but I, my understanding of Weber is that what he said was you needed the Protestant work ethic before you could have the full onset of full, full on capitalism, like, like we saw in, in Western Europe and, and North America. So I think what Weber was saying was um, you had to change your thinking before you could succeed as a capitalist. To be efficient, to be efficient. Yes, enough. yes, exactly. The, the, the efficiency of bureaucracy, for example, where uh, and the meritocracy. Now, there's a lot about what Weber observed and commented on that we consider positive. For example, the meritocracy. Like if you do a good job in your position, you get promoted because you've shown. In other words, you're not the nephew of the prince. Like the nephew of the prince got a great job, but the nephew of the prince was an inept idiot, but he was the nephew of the prince. You know, you're Don, you're, you're Don Jr. or Eric Trump and that, or, well, George, uh, or George W. Bush or George W. Bush. You're kind of an idiot, but you have the right last name and you're born into the right family and you advance. And that's, and that's the antithesis of Weber. That, well, and that, again, goes back to what I was saying about where you and I were born and raised here. Northeastern Pennsylvania has a lot of that, you know, mentality, and, and we suffer because of it. We suffer because it is not about merit. And, when, and you know, you look at studies uh, across the globe, across the nation of happiness. And, what you know, when people, mm-hmm. when people are usually unhappy, it's because they sense that where they live is not a just place. You know, besides having their basic needs met or not having their basic needs met uh, in a physical sense, metaphysically, if they are, are, are uh, sensing that it's not about merit, it's not about how good you are, it's not about honesty and integrity, it's about who you know, uh, it's, it's, it's random even, even to a certain extent, they are depressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and I think, you know, when you look at the happiness quotient, uh, some of the happiest places in the world are the places where there is the least amount of corruption. Um, so, you know, again, Scandinavian countries, people are a highly, you know, the satisfaction level is very high because they perceive that the institutions are working for them and working as efficiently as possible and that the officials that they put into place know how to do their job and are doing it fairly and properly. And so they're just, they just feel better. They just have a sense of well-being that people who live in uh, areas and countries of high corruption don't have. Right. And, and that's, 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 I think that's been borne out with, with a lot of different kinds of research. Well, and, and going back to uh, Weber and, and religion and all of, of that that we talked about, see, what, what happens often in my estimation is people who are, have deep faith in, in a god uh, via a religion, you know, like a Christi- some form of Christianity, uh, mm-hmm. In particular, that, that I, I know the, I've experienced that the most. They are often banking on that that justice to be borne out by that higher power. You know, they'll facilitate it, and when it doesn't happen, there's such a crisis, uh, or they they have to just disconnect 
and and not engage and and, and look at why this this thing isn't happening in a, in a fair manner in their in their community, and they just kiss it up to that higher power. In either way, in either case, it's not healthy. You're not going to solve the problems. You're not going to seek justice because you're 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 just kind of. Dis, you're disconnecting yourself as a responsible individual and giving it to a, this perceived higher power. Uh, it, 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 how do we get past that, I guess, is what I'm wondering. <laughs> if only I could provide the answers for that. Oh, I would be rich and famous. Um, well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, it sounds like you're talking about the, the corruption that, that exists at, for example, like the level of a local government. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Local, Is that part yeah, of what you're talking yeah, about? I, yes. And how people are often uh, suckered into it or they're passive until a major uh, decision has been borne out and they see, wow, that is that is so wrong. And how did this happen? Well, you weren't paying attention. You're, and you're not, as would be my response, you're not doing what you need to do. You're not fighting back because they perceive, they believe, well, the higher power that I pray to is going to be certain that, that that kind of injustice won't occur. And then when they see it does occur, they're like, what do I do? They're not equipped because they've they've written off their own sense of, of responsibility, engagement, expecting this higher power to take care of all that for them. I feel like it's an abdication of our responsibility as as people and citizens and human beings if we if we simply say it's all in God's hands. That to me is a little bit of a cop out. No doubt. Um, right. So so that that mentality um, is sort of antithetical to what I admire. And what I admire is people who people who you know the scientific method, empiricism, observing. Uh, compiling facts about something and then drawing a conclusion and not simply saying it's in, it's in God's hands. Now, look, here's, how, here's what I say about that. If you're talking about like, people's uh, uh, religiosity, I say it's a lot more frightening to me. Let's, the concept of a God, I actually had this discussion with a colleague this summer. The concept of a God existing and looking over the world is infinitely more frightening to me and terrifying than the concept of no God and complete cosmic randomness. Because the idea of the, of the, of the being, the all-powerful being, that lets us suffer the way we suffer in such profound ways, that's frightening to me, right? Isn't that a really sick twisted being yes. that would allow that much pain and suffering yes. and hurt us in that way when that being possesses the power to take that all away. So to me, if you believe in God, that's much more frightening. That God that you believe in is a sc- much scarier than just, than just random chance. There's no God. We're just here by chance. Do your best. Good luck. That's not as scary as a God. A God frightens the crap out of me. Yeah. And I think that works for a lot of uh, the upper... Uh, set and, and keeping us uh, again, sort of lobotomized and 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 prostrate. Uh, and one of the one of the characteristics of religion is your job is not to your job is not to think about it and question it. Your job is to believe it. So the church is antithetical to and and I'm sorry, but the mosque and the synagogue are antithetical to um, that that empirical process, the questioning process. They don't encourage that. They still have their set beliefs and they say, you must believe these things. So to me, if that's what you, if that's the route you've chosen, then you and I view the world in completely different ways because I'm not willing to say, oh, it's written down in a book somewhere. Okay. Then that must be true. No, I want proof. 
that's just how I am. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. And that, and that desire for proof, that desire to make you prove your idea. Now listen, if you have a belief, you can believe anything you want. You don't have to prove a belief. But if you're going to say to me, oh no, absolutely there's a God, then I'm going to say to you, prove it. It's very simple. And that very concept of asking for proof is what our culture is founded on. And I will tell you that when we talk about the village idiot going to political rallies and spouting out and out lies, and now this isn't me, some lefty liberal saying he lies, the fact that he lies is is very provable. Like the facts and the research are there and he says something that is demonstrably false. And those people listening to him don't don't engage in the simple process of saying, prove it. Prove what you say is true. They don't want it to be proven or disproven. They just want to believe. And there is no way that we can sit down with them and say, but that's not healthy. If we did that, innocent people would go to jail. If we, if we did that, the very foundations of our society and institutions would fall apart. They don't care about that. They don't care. That's not what their motivation is. And you know what? People like you and me, we, we probably will never get that. And we'll continue to beat our head against the wall and say, why are you believing this? It's not true. He is lying. We can prove that he's lying. They don't care. Well, They and, don't care. No. And, and the thing that makes me most frustrated, besides uh, you know the, that, that political realm you're, you're uh, talking about, the orangutan 45 and all it's it's uh and i say that with total disrespect because i you know <clears throat> I, I say want, it yeah i, I disrespect there's uh, nothing to respect about no. that about that person i, I just no. wanna, real quick i would say to anybody who who likes that person tell me what his positive attributes are he's putting what, on, what, what? He's, he's putting he's putting conservative justice on the supreme court yeah, well, you know what? They, 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 there they would have a point. And this is where I tell all my lefty friends, elections matter. When they say, I'm not voting for Hillary, blah, blah, blah. I say, well, now guess what? Now that Hillary's not in the White House, look who's sitting on the Supreme Court. Uh, Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh? Let, let me just say this. Here's what Republicans have given us. They've given us Clarence Thomas, a pathetic joke. They gave us Antonin Scalia, a mean, nasty SOB. They gave us uh, Neil Gorsuch. They gave us... Brett Kavanaugh, a sniveling little prep boy who back in our day, we would have flipped out over. We would have said, don't behave that way. That's not right. Don't treat people that way. Don't behave that way. It wasn't cool to be abusive towards women. It wasn't cool to pick on the puniest kid in your in your gang and make him feel like crap. It wasn't cool. And you know what? We're his we're in his generation. We didn't do that. We were decent human beings even when we were 17 years old. We weren't bullies and we weren't jerks. And what does that say about him as a person? Did he change? I don't think he has. No. So I got, I got you going off on the Republicans. I like that. What, Repu- what Republicans have, have uh, given us. That's beautiful. But what, what, you know, go, going back to uh, you know, uh, how we are affected negatively by these, these mindsets that are sort of narrow and, and manipulated uh, via fear and, and uh, sort of playing to the, the LCD, if not, you know, it, it's, it's us against them. 
it, it it really is something we we have to uh, transcend, of course. And and we can go back and look at some history, perhaps, to learn some lessons, and maybe you know even some good lessons, not just from their mistakes. Someone like uh, Caesar Augustus, right, the first Roman emperor. Yeah, there's, all right. There's some positives from that from that guy, aren't there? That we can learn absolutely. from. Absolutely, absolutely, and I will tell you. The more I teach Roman history, Latin grammar, Latin grammar every day is a is a. You know, you talk about imposter syndrome. I teach Latin, and I don't know how. You know, people call me a Latin teacher, but somehow I do it, and somehow I kind of know what I'm doing. I, I fumble my way through it. Um, but getting back to Caesar Augustus and Roman history for a minute. Um, the Roman people before he came to power, which was in about 32 BC, roughly between 32 and 28, uh, before he came to absolute power, uh, they had known civil war for oh, basically over a hundred years. Now think about that for a minute. Our civil war lasted four and a half years and it still scars our nation. They were dealing with civil war for uh, roughly a hundred years and it destabilized it destabilized their entire society. So after that long fighting wars, you know, think of Afghanistan, think of Sudan, you know, think of areas in the world, think of Syria, think of areas in the world that are racked with war. It's impossible to establish a sort of stable society and foundation within which people can prosper and flourish and feel secure. So a hundred years of civil war and then he comes to power. And he says to the people, no more civil war. Now we're going to build more roads. Now we're going to set up a system of, of, of finance so that you can run your business. Now we're going to get people onto farms and we're going to get people working again. Now, it wasn't all peaches and cream. There was slavery. There were land confiscations. There was all kinds of stuff. But overall, you had the advent of the Pax Romana. And what that meant was your average shopkeeper could get up in the morning, eat breakfast with his family, walk to his shop, open his shop run his business all day, make a little money, and walk home at the end of the night without being killed. And that was a really, really big deal. And that's all Augustus had to deliver. And he did, for the most part. And, you know, they called it the golden, it was the golden age. It was Pax Romana. It was, you could travel roads from the Middle East all the way to England and feel relatively safe and secure because Roman law prevailed. Um, there was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of brutality. There was a lot of um, exploitation. But for a lot of people, it worked. And that's all he had to deliver because of the instability. Now, fast forward to, to our current political situation. You have a political clique right now that thrives on instability and, and, and disinformation and confusion and, and an onslaught of, of lies. And what that does is that makes us really, really numb and it allows them to manipulate us to the point where if Trump utters a coherent sentence, I feel a little bit better. Like That's all he has to do to make me feel a little bit better. If he says something that sounds reasonable coming out of the mouth of a president, I feel like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness. In other words, I've lowered the bar so low that they don't have to deliver much for me to say, oh, thank God. Thank God we're not breaking out in the Civil War. Thank God we're not starting World War III. That's what that destabilization does, and that's how it conditions us to put up with this nonsense that we're putting up with. Right. And, and so it, it's counter to, uh, in a certain sense, 
what uh, Augustus tried to do. Again, he was brutal in many ways, but uh, yes. But when he when he said we're going to build our our society through uh, grand works projects, I guess you could say, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, we can learn a little bit from that. Maybe we, but it. But what you're saying is, our our present leadership uh, does not want that sort of uh, co coherent focus. They want it to be all disoriented because they got they got nothing to give. All, all they want to do is maintain their power. By, well, by the, dividing the, the, us and by confusing us and by instilling fear in us and keeping us, you know, ignorant. Again, again, it's the classic destabilization. If the more they destabilize, the more they're able to take advantage of that situation. I mean, I don't see how anybody in their right mind could feel that Trump is a patriotic American who simply loves his country. There's no evidence of that. Show me the evidence of that. Well, He's we, dodged his... He dodges his taxes for years. I mean, the very first basic thing that anybody can do as a decent citizen is pay their taxes. Right. He doesn't even do that. No. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't see how you could consider him some great patriotic American who loves his country and, and truly has the best interests of the nation at well, heart. I don't I mean, think it's many a joke people, that he's president. I don't think many people really look at him that way. I think many people look at him, again, as a means to an end. He, you know, he, he's protecting them in some way, protecting their their uh, power or protecting yeah. protecting them from the other. Uh, he, he that's what he is to people. I don't think most people really think he's a patriot or, or they even respect him. Uh, but anyway, we're running out of time for this go round. It's always a, a a very vivacious, intense, passionate. Uh, conversation with Sir William on, on uh, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. So how are we going to fix all this? We need a visionary of some sort, right? We need an uprising in some in some way. What, how are we going to do it? Are you going to lead it, Sir William? Okay, no, two, two, two things. You said one thing at the end of your last statement. You talked about um, helping people hold on to power. What I like to think what we're seeing are the, the, the convulsions of the body as it's in its death throes. And you've got those last gasping breaths and the flailing around of the limbs. And I like to think that that's the the white oligarchy, the white old oligarchy, understanding that its days are limited and that it's doing whatever it can, including Donald Trump, to to stay in power. And that, I think, is to be expected from from a, a clique that has held power for so long when they start to see the actual possibility that they might lose that power. They're pretty much going to do anything. So maybe that's what we're seeing now. In terms of your second, your question about an uprising, I, I su fully support the millennials now who are rising up and demonstrating and saying enough is enough. Um, we're seeing change. All the scientists I hear say that the situation for us now is very dire. But they also add that it is not it is not the end. If we take if we take drastic action, we can help to rectify the situation. Now that might be Pollyanna-ish. I, I don't know. Climate simply, change, I guess you're talking. Yeah, about. I'm I'm simply saying that when it comes to global warming, all of the scientists say here is where we are. Here is where we're probably going to be unless we change. And if we change, there are a number of outcomes we could be looking at that are way more favorable. So, Greta, you know, Greta, right? So, so look, I, I have no choice. You have a choice in life. You can be optimistic or you can be pessimistic. Those, that's the choice. If you choose to be pessimistic, you got to ask yourself, what, what are the returns? What do I get back from that? And I choose to be optimistic simply because the returns are greater. Even if I'm wrong, I choose to be optimistic because it allows me to get through my day and it allows me to live my life. And what else can I really do? Beautiful.
Surf William, it's always a distinct pleasure for us to have you on the program. Have a have a wonderful um, autumn, and we'll be talking to you again soon before the holidays. I hope, or during the holidays. I well, because I suffer from imposter syndrome, I can't believe anybody wants to listen to me. But but okay, <laughs> they do. They love you. Okay. Peace and love, my brother. Ciao, brother.
Pauline Kael, the movie critic for the New Yorker magazine from 1968 to 1991, died 18 years ago on September 3rd, 2001. She was known for her witty, enthusiastic, sometimes caustic, sometimes fawning, but always intensely readable reviews. And she was lucky enough to write about cinema during one of its golden ages, the late 60s, early 70s. She is the subject of a documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, which is due to be released at the end of the year. Here is an excerpt from her review of The Godfather, Part 2, originally published on December 23, 1974. At the close of The Godfather, Michael Corleone has consolidated his power by a series of murders and has earned the crown his dead father, Don Vito, handed him. In the last shot, Michael, his eyes clouded, assures his wife, Kay, that he is not responsible for the murder of his sister's husband. The door closes Kay out while he receives the homage of subordinates. And if she doesn't know that he lied, it can only be because she doesn't want to. The Godfather Part Two begins where the first film ended. Before the titles, there's a view behind that door. The new king stands in the dark, his face lusterless and dispassionate as his hand is being kissed. The familiar Godfather Waltz theme is heard in an ambiguous, melancholy tone. Is it our imagination, or is Michael's face starting to rot? The dramatic charge of that moment is Shakespearean. The waltz is faintly, chillingly ominous. By a single image, Francis Ford Coppola has plunged us back into the sensuality and terror of the first film. And with the relentlessness of a master, he goes farther and farther. The daring of part two is that it enlarges the scope and deepens the meaning of the first film. The Godfather was the greatest gangster picture ever made and had metaphorical overtones that took it far beyond the gangster genre. In part two, the wider themes are no longer merely implied. The second film shows the consequences of the actions in the first. It's all one movie, in two great big pieces, and it comes together in your head while you watch. Coppola might have almost have a pact with the audience. We're already so engrossed in the Corleones that now he can go on to give us a more interior view of the characters at the same time that he shows their spreading social influence. The completed work is an epic about the seeds of destruction that the immigrants brought to the new land, with Sicilians, wasps, and Jews separate socially but joined together in crime and political bribery. This is the bicentennial picture that doesn't insult the intelligence. It's an epic vision of the corruption of America. Coppola's approach is open-handed. He doesn't force the situations. He puts the material up there, and we read the screen for ourselves. One never wants less of the characters. One always wants more, particularly of Vito in the 1917 period, which is recreated in a way that makes movies once again seem a miraculous medium. This film wouldn't have been made if the first hadn't been a hit, 
and the first was made because the Paramount executives expected it to be an ordinary gangster shoot 'em up When you see the new picture, you wonder how Coppola won the fights. Maybe the answer is that they knew they couldn't make it without him. After you see it, you feel you can't make, they can't make any picture without him. He directs with supreme competence. Coppola is the inheritor of the traditions of the novel, the theater, and, especially, opera and movies. The sensibility at work in this film is that of a major artist. We're not used to it. How many screen artists get the chance to work in the epic form? And who has been able to seize the power to compose a modern American epic? And who else, when he got the chance and the power, would have proceeded with the absolute conviction that he'd make the film the way it should be made? In movies, that's the inner voice of the authentic hero. Picture on a closed circuit Boy, you lost it all Thinking you could rework it Stole a credit card and ran away Back in Louisville they call the play And now we're all ruined and just Listen for the lies of summer That you would call a brother the Girls that loved a ghost A ghost that had a sick mother Now you're waiting for the mess to take But it takes a miracle to heal this break And now we'll all rewind and just Listen for the lies of summer As the musk of pollen and incredible designs weaved by spiders create the endless possibilities 
of depth and wondrous interactive existence on the deck built off the house I call home. I bask in the sun as it peers through a bush, breathing it all in. Episode 336 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend and resident philosopher, Surf William. I also would like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, and writer-reviewer Pauline Kale and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Brendan Benson, Nathaniel Frey, James Womack, Russ Brown, Albert Linville, Soundgarden, Amy Mann, Mosean Worker, of course, Terrence Blanchard and Branford Marsalis, too. Until next week, why don't we give it a go? and try to enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening.